Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to say that I'm grateful to be living and working in Etham, on Sayayin, on the traditional lands of the Tla'amen, Klahus, Homoko, and Comox First Nations, who lived as one people without borders before the colonizers made first contact and eventually stole their land. I have had the wonderful privilege and honor to learn from the Talaman peoples about the history of Sayayan, including Kotayeshkan, where for thousands of years a large civilization dwelled there with evidence of one hearth being used by generations for over two millennia, and an ancient tree that still stands there today with evidence of the pitch the peoples used to bind materials. I also learned about Shetekwan, the mountain I can see from my home, which is an important spiritual place. Thanks, everybody. Emote. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Ryman, and excited uh, to have my guest uh, from from the opposite uh, opposite corner of North America in Florida, as, as I speak here up in Northwest uh, British Columbia. We have Dr. Kim Crosland in, in, in on the podcast today with us. Welcome. welcome Hi, welcome. Kim. Thanks for having me, Ben. So awesome. Uh, so we're going to be talking to Kim today about some really cool things uh, in, term, in, in terms of sort of the application of ABA and PBS in areas of things like uh, runaways and homelessness and other kind of really, you know, necessary areas that you know that's not, not the right word areas areas where i you know i think our science could do a lot of good and and it would be wonderful for other folks to kind of you know get into this area and and really start uh, kind of doing our work to help some of our, our most vulnerable uh, folks so i always like to start kim with a, just a bit of a, an origin story for folks kind of how folks kind of got into the field um and 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 kind of eventually kind of got to their the, where they are today so if you want to kind of tell us your story sure awesome. sure so well i i kind of fell into behavior analysis kind of like probably most of the people or a lot of people in the field where i was i lived in pennsylvania and ended up moving to the baltimore area after i graduated with my undergraduate degree in psychology and since you can't do a whole lot with an undergrad degree in psychology i was looking for potential job opportunities. We moved to Baltimore because of my future husband's job. And I found Kennedy Krieger Institute and ended up getting a job there on the neurobehavioral unit there. And was working there as a behavior data specialist, started as that, and then kind of worked my way up there. And that's where I kind of was first introduced to behavior analysis, uh, was on the inpatient unit with kids with really severe behavior problems, um, aggression, self-injury, and so forth. First time I ever heard about a functional analysis or assessment, was able to do that there. And so that kind of got me involved in learning about behavior analysis. And then I worked with some faculty there at the time. So Dr. Wayne Fisher um, and Dr. Zarconi. And so um, Jennifer Zarconi ended up going out to the University of Kansas and taking a position there and said, you ought to come back to school. So that's what I did. So I ended up uh, going back and getting my master's and PhD at the University of Kansas and at that time, when I went to Kansas, it was pretty cool because I got to take some courses with uh, Don Baer, uh, Mont Wolf, Jan Sheldon, Jim Sherman, a variety of like big wigs in wow. behavior analysis. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty awesome. Got to 
work out there and was working on a, a grant out there, actually, when I moved out there. My actual advisor was Steve Schroeder, who was doing a lot of biobehavioral work at the time. And uh, he had a huge RO1 grant that was evaluating the medication Risperidone for SIB and aggressive behaviors. And he had a subcontract related to that with functional analysis. And so I worked on that where we went out and, and did individual sessions every week with those that were enrolled in this. It was a randomized controlled trial, double blind study. And we were doing functional analysis sessions hmm. to see if we saw changes in function of problem behavior. Uh, throughout that medication study. And so it was pretty interesting. We actually did for some mm. of the participants. It would reduce maybe one function, but not another, and so forth. So so I was out in Kansas, got my master's PhD there, uh, and then ended up moving to Florida because I made my husband move to Kansas. So he got, a, he got to choose where we move next. <laughs> um, so <laughs> he was tired of the Kansas weather. So ended up in Florida. He likes to say all that kind of stuff. So ended up in Florida. And when I came to Florida, there was a huge program going on at the time to implement behavior analysis across the state of Florida in child welfare. And so that's what I started doing when I came to Florida. I was a behavior analyst on that project and working with families and training families in a curriculum that was developed, the parenting tools curriculum to help foster parents uh, manage problem behaviors of kids that come into their home, uh, and then worked on mm. that project for several years and then ended up getting a faculty position at University of South Florida and continued some of that work, did some, some of the runaway stuff that we'll talk about. And that's kind of where I've been having fun in, in Florida. Wow. That's a good story. So again, I say again, but you haven't heard this yet, <laughs> but, but I say this, I've said this to a few of my American guests who sort of talk about, um, um, you know, the typical way of kind of getting into the field, which is so much different than a lot of us from other countries, because, you know, we, we, uh, we don't have access to these, uh, you know, these, these institutions that are super behavior analytic, like Kennedy Krieger and, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and other, uh, some of these other, some of these other kind of big ones that are, that are down in the States and have all these, you know, super, super famous, you know, ABA gurus <laughs> working at them. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love my Canadian behavior analysts. Uh, but, but, you know, just, to, you know, usually for us, it, it seems to be sort of the, the, uh, it, it, it's all, it's all about sort of this autism funding kind of right. pathway that, that le leads folks into sort of RBT slash therapist land, and then eventually <clears throat> kind of into, you know, uh, either a BCBA or eventually a PhD and in, in, in kind of teaching at school. And so to kind of hear, you know, the stories of folks that are, you know, just get to go and, you know, go, oh, I got to hang out with Mont Wolf and, <laughs> and, 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 and Don Bear and, you know, and I'm like, ah, yeah. hate you folks. Um, and, you know, never getting that exposure. And I do hear, and I did interview, I've interviewed a couple of folks from, from like over in Africa and, 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 and Egypt that came over to the States and got ah. to have some, sort of those similar experiences that you've had, um, which were really, really kind of interesting. So I think I think that's kind of neat. I think the other piece that that I think some folks, you know, they're listening sort of, you know, from you know other parts of the world, you know, may or may not be aware of sort of Florida was, you know, uh, you know, kind of one of the one of the early sort of I guess you know I don't know if I'm saying this right, but sort of early states to kind of really get into. ABA, um, you know, as you know, I mean, I think that's just sort of the, where, you know, ABAI kind of started was sort of 
the, the from the, the state association in Florida. Or yeah, because they like had the, a, the they, they had a certification, a Florida state certification. That's still some. There are some behavioral exactly. that still have that here. Never got the the national certification. Yeah. Right, right. That was sort of the precursor to the BACB and those sorts of things. And so to hear that Florida has a you know a statewide child welfare program that wants to use ABA, anyone else sort of on the planet is like, how do we get our government to want ABA into some in, into a program like this? You know, and so to hear that is is you know again we're just like, oh yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> like we're just we're just going to be mild. We're going to be years away before we can before before some government person is going to go, hey. We need we need ABA in our in our in our child welfare field, and so just hearing kind of these stories is you know is is in some ways it's I, I I'm jealous, but in, in other ways it's it's just great to see that that work is is being done and that the, the research is being done. Um, the other the other piece that uh, that uh, struck me, and, and I'm already forgetting what it was, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe it was, I think it was, it was that, that, that kind of, that kind of, that Florida piece, uh, but also just kind of moving right into sort of uh, from, from, you know, some of these great places and then into that, into that uh, sort of professorship to kind of continue that work is, is awesome. You know, in, in terms of kind of foster care, um, uh and and I this is a bit a bit of a new area for me not so much foster care itself but just kind of having with the agency that I work for is starting to get a lot more um, uh, you know referrals for people in foster care and you know and we're really unsure kind of what to do and kind of how to approach it and you know often you know foster care situations are are not always lengthy and so you know you've got someone placed in there and and you kind of you immediately get kind of challenging behavior just as a result of sort of being removed from their home and, you know, put into a, you know, an unknown environment right, right. with, you know, people they don't know and all those sorts of things. So it's not surprising that, you know, your, your, your foster care research kind of went from, you know, uh, training staff to, you know, deal with challenging behavior to, um, you know, the work around kind of, you know, kids kind of running out of foster care and leaving foster care because i can imagine it's 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 hard to sort of you know you know set up a a foster home that that's gonna that's gonna make a kid want to stay there right right yeah uh there's a really good video too called removed when you mentioned removed that i ended up showing to my students in class because there's a lot of things that hmm. it helps you kind of think about the traumatic experiences that kids in in child welfare may have endured and how you might kind of change how yeah. you view that and how you go in as a behavior analyst. Things aren't always as straightforward mm -hmm. uh sometimes it's it's a little more difficult to figure out maybe what the function of a problem behavior is because it's related to some type of traumatic event that occurred for that particular child so there's a really good video that shows some of the problem behaviors that might occur and maybe why uh related to kids who are removed and and put into different environments um, but we were doing yes yeah, so we were doing both group training with foster parents mm -hmm. and also working individually with with foster parents and biological parents, we would have some of them come into some of our trainings too, who were trying to uh, 
uh, get their kids back. And so we were teaching them skills and we called them tools. So tools, the tools for positive behavior change. And they involved kind of basic behavior analytic procedures. So stay close. How do you develop a relationship with a child? What do you do to do that? There's steps you might mm. do. Uh, use reinforcement, set expectations, um, which involve a variety of differential reinforcement type procedures in those trainings. And so we were doing those um, statewide related to the program. And now, even though that statewide program, because of budget cuts, got got actually cut they there are still mm. behavioral analysts working in the different uh child welfare agencies across the state of florida so i still have a lot of contact with those folks who are still out there doing some work but when we were running when we were doing that program which is kind of how we got into kids running away is back in 2008 mm. 2009 the uh state of florida had a huge issue with missing children and it happened because there was a, mm. i think one or two kids ended up uh being found um, dead in, in the streets or whatever. And they didn't, mm. uh, they weren't doing a good job of making sure where kids were. Uh, and they were having a lot of issues mm. of kids running away from placements. And so that's where mm -hmm. a number of folks were working on how can we develop something to help improve services and decrease kids running away from foster care. And so that's where uh, mm -hmm. there was an original kind of survey or questionnaire developed. Because one of the problems with running away is you, it, conducting a functional assessment is really not um, possible in the normal sense because we can't yeah. see them when they run to know what's the antecedent, what's the consequence, no, exactly. where are they running to, what are they accessing, you know, why did they run, what's the environment mm -hmm. for. So instead of, of trying to figure out from a standard FAA perspective, we uh, said, well, let's develop mm -hmm. a questionnaire and talk to kids when they come back from running away and see if we can figure mm -hmm. out the function based on certain questions we ask um, of kids when they return. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a questionnaire. So we had a brief questionnaire that behavior analysts were conducting in foster care. So a kid mm. would come back from running away. They'd sit down and talk with that kid. And the behavior analyst kind of knows the kind of questions to ask to get it function. But what we were interested mm -hmm. in is, well, most child welfare agencies can't afford behavior analysts uh, to come in and do this. So right. can we figure out a way to develop a assessment or a questionnaire uh, and then also interventions that would uh, be matched on to what the results of the questionnaire were and figure out a way to do this so that direct care staff or caregivers or case managers in foster care can actually do this uh, on their own with mm. little or some support from a behavior analyst. And that's kind of what my research Very was, good. was involved in. And we got um, so I submitted and got a federal grant through Department of Education in the, in the U.S. So it's called the Institute of Education Sciences. And they were interested because one of the things with kids who are running away is they're not attending school and they're not having mm. good educational outcomes. Their outcomes are really poor. So mm -hmm. if we can get them to stay in their placement, we can improve their educational outcomes. So they funded a development mm -hmm. grant to try to develop this intervention. And that's where during that development process, we ran uh, a number of focus groups, which as a behavioral analyst, that was all new to me. I have like qualitative people that help me on my grants um, to run kind of focus groups to get information on how, how do mm. we ask certain questions? What type of questions do we ask? And we ran these with caseworkers, uh, teachers, and also with youth themselves. And so we got youth who were currently hmm. in the system and also youth who had aged out right. and were runners when they were in the system. And those were actually the youth that provided a lot of good information for us about how do we talk to kids when they come back from running away so that they'll mm -hmm. answer our questions and so that they'll be open to telling us what's going on and that sort of thing and what kinds of interventions might actually work. Um, so we got a lot of that information in, and then that's how we also developed the intervention guide. So we kind of had this intervention guide mat that matches on to 
when we determine the function. There's a whole interview questionnaire when kids come back. And we don't just say, okay, well, so why'd you run away? We ask questions like, what mm. are the good things that happen when you're on the run? What are the things that aren't so good when mm. you're on the run? So that we can kind of figure out what are the reinforcers they're accessing. Are they running away to see a boyfriend or girlfriend? Are they running away to have fun, do something cool, do drugs, whatever? Um, and then once we can figure that out, or are they running away because they hate their placement, their current placement? Um, once we figure that out, mm. then we can figure out, well, what kind of intervention can we match onto that function that might be successful in getting them to um, stay put in, in a location, you know, in a foster home or a group home and, and get them to stay there and be more successful. And so that's kind of what we've been working on for, gosh, it's been like 10 years now. We've been doing a variety of things. We also got another grant at SBIR. So it's a small business innovation research grant to try to get all of that information mm. into an online format um, so that it could be used on a tablet. So an interviewer can go out and have all that information on a tablet or a laptop, whatever, and be able to answer mm. all the questions there and, and have it latch on and give them suggestions. Because I think that's one of the hardest things. I think it's the hardest thing for anybody is, okay, you figure out the function of the problem behavior. How do you match the intervention mm -hmm. to function? Um, and so yes. that's really what we're trying to work with, with case managers and caseworkers to try to figure that out when they're working with kids who are running away. How do we develop uh, effective interventions? Because the go-to tends to see, seems to be, well, let's just punish. Let's just make them you know, sleep on a bed in the yep. main room so they can't run away or let's <laughs> take away points or whatever. And we know those things don't yep. work. Those actually most likely increase um, the chances of them running away again. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're working on. Uh, and we currently have a small project we're starting back up for um, the state of Florida. I've been meeting with them over the past few months where they're trying to implement this in um, Orlando and a couple other areas and actually have the uh, caseworkers implement the runaway model or intervention and see if we can get it to work with them. Because so far, we've only done it with behavioral analysts like support. We are going to provide some support to them at mm. monthly meetings to try to help them brainstorm if they're struggling with um, intervention development and so forth once they interview youth when they come back from running away. But that's really the, the plan is for them to go out and be able to potentially do this on their own. And then we'll try to get some more funding to support it. Wow. Really cool. You know, you touched on a lot of things, which I want to unpack a little bit. One thing initially, and it wasn't really something we talked about in the pre-chat, but it's something that you you said that that resonates for me, and and I've I've struggled with a lot, um, um, and it's it's this whole behavior analysts cost too much mm -hmm. bit, um, which and they absolutely do. I mean, that's not a bit. I mean, it's, we we are expensive, um, uh, and certainly more expensive depending on where you go, um, and. It just seems, I don't, I don't really know what the question is here, but <laughs> it just seems sort of, it seems sort of ridiculous to me, you know, and I, I'm, I'm so boxing for a second here, but it seems sort of ridiculous to me that, um, you know, we're in a field, we're in a helping profession, a social service type field where we work directly with folks. You know, generally speaking, social services did not equate to, you know, wealth um, right. for for folks that work in it. You know, you know, when 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 I finally became a homeowner, I I felt like, how is it possible that we're in social services and we own a home? Um, and um, you know, with sort of the, the 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 piddly funding that we tend to get for for the kind of work we do, uh, but it just it just seems so strange to me that the that. that 
that we're, we've got a system set up in such a way that we get paid lots and lots of money to do this stuff, but no one can afford us. So what's the point of <laughs> us except to sort of pass our skills on to someone else like like you're doing in some of your work? But then, of course, we get a lot of, you know, flack for, you know, then not including a behavior analyst anymore and, and so on and so forth. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It, it, it just um, it's it, 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 it's frustrating to me, but I don't know if there's an answer. Um, I, I think also because I'm I'm in a in an area and, and this is by no means, a, um, you know, a uh, a sort of, uh, you know, slam on my company. But I'm in there. I, I don't make, you know. I don't make the kind of money that I see some behavior analysts in the States making, um, which is fine. And I didn't get into this field to make money. I, I, you know, I'm middle-class, I have a modest income. I'm happy with, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Um, but I, I definitely could charge probably twice as much as what, you know, my company kind of currently bills for services. Uh, but we don't because we want people to be able to access our services. And I'm, 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 I'm I just I just don't know what the answer is. Yeah, it's is. unfortunate. I don't know what the answer is either. I know that in the States, it's one of the biggest issues is around insurance and billing for services. Mm. And right now, in most of the States, yeah. the only way to bill for behavioral-like services is under an autism diagnosis or related disability mm. diagnosis. And that was one of the issues in foster care, too, was... When, when Mike Stoudemore started the program, the statewide program, he was working in foster care, but he was mm. working with kids with disabilities because that was the only way that there was funding to support behavioral like services because mm. they could bill for that. I and see. But then he was seeing that there were so many other kids that needed our services that couldn't access them because they had emotional and behavior yeah. disorders, but they didn't have autism or developmental disabilities. And that's why he was kind of promoted, hey, how can we do this so that it might be feasible, which is why they developed kind of a group-based training, thinking it would be a little bit more cost-effective. Can we train a lot of parents, uh, foster parents, in a group setting to do well and support a lot of kids so any kid that comes into their home would, would have a parent that was trained in how best to work with them, and that might be a more cost-effective you know, method of doing it um, for kids and also better for you know, kids in the system that were running into their, getting placed into different yeah. homes. But yeah, I don't know if there's a good answer to that because I think it still exists no. in the states where child welfare agencies cannot afford to have very many behavior yeah. analysts. And oftentimes, behavior analysts aren't used the way we should be either, even in the school system, is that we're used to kind of put out fires right. instead of um, from an antecedent right. perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. Anyway, and just, 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 just kind of that, that point kind of, kind of, kind of got me. But I'm glad. That you're able that, and, and I'm glad that there are sort of you know programs or, or not necessarily programs, but you know acad academics, you know like yourself, that are able to sort of access kind of those additional funds, so that you know you know some of these groups are able to get this kind of training with with which they normally you know probably wouldn't be able to sort of afford on their own. So I think that that that's that's probably one way. I think I guess we can mitigate things is is through is through those grants and through those yeah. sorts of things. But it, it does it does set up that. Barrier. And there are we're but, trying yeah. to help some of the group facilities locally with how they could better or figure out different ways to bill so that they can provide behavioral like services. One of the group homes locally that I work with, a residential facility uh, in foster care, they've found out some ways that they right. can actually hire. They have hired two behavior analysts and have been able to bill successfully to support them. So I think there are ways around it. I think mm. people just don't know how to do it. And I'm sure it's a lot different where yeah. you are than it is in the States. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I almost wonder if folks need to have, and, and again, I, I, it's hard to sort of speak for other people and their living situations and where that, I mean, I live, I live in a rural area where the cost of living is mm-hmm. relatively low and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, in, in, you know, the bulk of our behavior analysts are in big cities where the cost of living is really yeah. high. So sort of suggest to them that they should have like a sliding scale of right. rate, uh, <clears throat> not be doable if, if, in order to survive. I know there's, you know, and, and I'll, I'll move off from this in a second, but I, I know just as one example of, of a, of a, of a person that was moving from another one agency to our company because they had to have a caseload of something like 75 kids or something oh my gosh. because the fund, because the funding was so low and it took 75 kids for them to make a middle-class That's salary. Insane. So that, that was sort of the ridiculousness of it all, but kind of moving on yeah. from that. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I want, I want to get down to some of sort of the, the nitty gritty of some of the studies and kind of what you found, but I'm curious sort of what, how, how did, um, what was sort of the perspective or sort of, uh, of these kids like come, like were these kids eager to kind of speak to you? The, so that's a good question. So I, I think it varied. So the kids who had aged out yeah. and we got to come back in and to our focus groups, they were actually very eager to talk with us. I think because they felt like they might be able to make a difference for those kids who are currently in care, in foster care. So what they're saying and help and telling us might actually affect and help somebody else. So I think they were definitely more open to it. The kids who are currently in foster care, they seem to be open to sharing, but they really did have a rough time. Some of them like trying to discuss what might work because things just weren't going well. And so it was hard for them mm-hmm. to kind of think, think about, well, what might work better? What might we do to better support you? Um, they, they, they could mm-hmm. definitely complain and tell us what wasn't going well, but it was hard for them to kind of take the yeah. perspective of, well, maybe this would, would help or this, this could be done better. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was helpful mm-hmm. for us to hear what wasn't going well, uh, so that we could get an idea Absolutely. of what we might better do to support them. Yeah. And so what we're kind of, I mean, obviously when, when, and I, I kind of read this in some of, some of the earlier studies you did around sort of when you were first kind of, these might've been this, these focus group studies where you're sort of trying to get some initial idea. Um, and generally speaking, I think I read in a couple of the papers, you know, the reasons kids were running away were either to get away, which makes sense to get away from something in, you know, in that foster home environment. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before I go on, were, was all is all your work been around runaways from foster care or has this been runaways from home as well? Pretty much from foster care settings. So it can be from residential mm-hmm. settings, but kids that are in foster care. Yes. Now, it doesn't mean that this wouldn't necessarily apply to kids who aren't in foster care, but I think there could be other nuances with kids who aren't in foster care as to why they're running away. So we, mm-hmm. uh, but all of this work has been specific to kids in foster care. And, and do you know, actually, and I, I, I kind of just thought of this, but do you know if there's sort of stats on, you know, do, do most, do kids, when the kids are, when we hear about kids running away, are they mostly running from foster care or are there a lot of kids running away from home? We hear running away from home is a phrase, but I don't know. If- I never hear about kids actually doing yeah, it. Yeah, there are a lot of kids who run away from regular home situations. I think kids in foster care okay. are probably, I think they're about three times more likely to run away than, than kids who aren't in foster care. Oh, interesting. So there is a much higher percentage of kids running away that are in foster care. But but kids right. do. I mean, it's right. teenagers will run away from regular home placements. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. fair enough. So, 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 so with that, kind of going back to the question i was starting to phrase was it was basically they're either trying to escape that foster home situation or maybe the family home situation so there's something about it they want to get away from or they want to get 
to mm-hmm. something. And I think that those are kind of the the sort of the the the, the 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 sort of general categories. And that's really, I think that's sort of the you know the most behavior analysts out there will know that you know most elopement type right. behavior is is related to one of those two things. Although actually, I should say that I think a lot I think a lot of folks just think about the leaving and don't think about the accessing uh. um, as sort of being as sort of being part of that. But you know, it, it's not always about getting away from the math worksheet. Sometimes it's just about getting to the right. playground. Um, and so, <clears throat> um, but with, um, with these folks and, and with kind of the work you're doing, what were, were there kind of some common sort of uh, more specific kind of things that folks were trying to kind of reasons for running away? Well, functions? I mean, what I'll tell you is that I would say the majority of the kids had, they were running for both reasons for, multiple reasons, both to escape an aversive environment that they were currently in and mm. also to act something, access something that they couldn't in that environment. Um, mm. So it seemed like there was, you, typically most kids had multiple functions going on. And so when we did the interview, right. we have a part towards the end of the interview where we kind of have them rank what's most important since they may have more, there might be more than one function so that we kind of know what to start mm. with, what to start kind of addressing at first. Um, and then try to address the rest. And sometimes everything is addressed by one thing. Uh, but yeah, they're running mm-hmm. away from a group home setting that they hate. They don't like the caregivers. They don't like something about the setting. They're accessing friends. Fam- they might, in fact, and this is one thing that's a lot different than kids who run away from biological homes is that a lot of these kids are running to their mm-hmm. biological families. Uh, so oh, it might not be right? that they're yeah, good for them, but they're the only family they know. And they're running toward two people yes. in their biological family. Uh, and so that may happen. Yeah. They may be running for girlfriend, boyfriends. They may be running to access drugs. So there's kind of a variety of things that, that we've seen. And, and we really did struggle with, well, can we actually be successful for kids who are running to access you know, drugs and alcohol or something like that? Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. in uh, quite a few cases, we, we were. Um, it's a matter of, you know, when mm. you interview the kids about finding out. I mean, I can give you a good example if you want. Yeah, okay. please. So we had this one, this one kid who uh, was living in a group facility and uh, he was running away multiple times and we got him back and interviewed him. So one of the behavior analysts on our team interviewed him. And during the interview, this kid literally pulls out wads of cash. And so, oh yeah. My gosh. And, and he pretty much <laughs> like divulges his entire life story, which was just insane. Wow. He, uh, his, his parents were involved in a, a drug ring, basically. And so he was born mm. into that, born into uh, this drug wow. ring. Uh, and his father had been murdered and his mother was in prison. Oh and the mm. rest of his family was still involved in this. And he pretty much, it was kind of like you were born into the family. It's something you have to do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, he basically had a job that was covering up him leaving to go be able to sell drugs and whatever else. And so he'd leave to go to this construction job, but he was really actually selling drugs and making a lot of money and so forth. But in the interview, the interesting thing was that he commented that, you know, he didn't want to end up like his dad or his mom. It wasn't something that he wanted Mm. to happen. You know, he knew he kind of had to do this, but it really wasn't what he was wanting to do. And so in the interview, well, what Mm -hmm. is it that you you know interested in doing? And he had this dream of owning a landscaping company. (laughs) Which is insane. Wow. Yeah, he really wanted a landscaping company. This is something he was interested <laughs> in. Like, all right. And so when the behavioral analyst who interviewed him came back and talked to us, we're like, my God, how are we going to compete with all this money? Like, dude, this, this kid can get, mm-hmm. you know, whatever he wants with all this money. 
Uh, so what we did was uh, set up a brief behavior contract with him, like to stay put for a little bit while we worked on trying to get him his. So he, in order to own a company in the United States and probably anywhere, you kind of have to have some ID. Like he didn't have a driver's license yet. He didn't have mm. his GED. Uh, he had kind of dropped out of school. So he wanted to go back and get it. So we were able to get him in the GED classes, able to get him identification. And then fortunately, the group facility that he was at was willing to work with us and said, well, we can pay him to do some landscaping at our facility. So we got mm. him to do that, uh, which got him to stay put. Hmm. He was doing some landscaping there. We were surprised that he still had it run, <laughs> um, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so he was doing landscaping there and ended up uh, aging out of the system. And the system here in Florida is insane. They actually put him when he aged out. He went back into an apartment right where he used to live and was selling drugs. He but was Ugh. smart enough to say, I'm not going to do this. He saw one of his other friends get arrested. And he, at the time, Whoa. was his girlfriend at the time was pregnant, and he was going to be a father. Um, this, he would have been like 19, 20 at the time after he aged out. He hadn't run away since we started working with him. He got his GED, yeah. and um, wow. he figured that wasn't a good place for him to live, so he moved. And he was still doing landscaping for the group home, so they were paying him. So he had gotten that contract, and I think he got another contract for landscaping, too. And had brought and ended up buying his own, I think, mower and some other equipment and so forth. Amazing. So he was actually one of the amazing success stories that we didn't think we'd be successful with. I actually met him once when I was out at that group facility. He came up, showed me a picture of his adorable baby, and was so excited about his family and mm. and so forth. So, so you can actually change even when you don't think that uh, you might make a difference uh, or really difficult. You can actually compete with some of that stuff, which we didn't think we would uh, when it comes to drugs or um, you know money and that sort of thing. So. He was definitely a successful story. I think he's still doing well. I haven't, you know, been in contact with him for a little while, but, but yeah, so that's one of the kids, but with a, a number of kids that we've had very similar uh, situations where once we were able to figure out, you know, what, what do they want in their, in their life situation? How do they want things change and how can we make that difference? Mm -hmm. And it might be changing a placement. If we can, sometimes we can't, it mm. depends on the foster care agency. If we can figure out a different placement, you know, we've had a, like one girl, she wanted to be placed just with a single mother because she had been sexually abused by a man in her life before. And so we were able to get her a placement with a mom who was trained in the behavior curriculum I mentioned earlier. And she did really well there, never ran away from that placement after we changed it. Uh, there's just a variety of things. It just really depends. Some are much more difficult. We had one girl who was running to access older men who we can't allow. Like sometimes mm. we can set up a situation where, yes, you can access a boyfriend or girlfriend if they're age appropriate sure. and make that happen. Yeah. But this girl was running to older men. And so instead for her, we tried to figure out what could, what other activities might compete with that. And she had played volleyball before and we were able to get her back into playing volleyball, which helped to compete with mm. that and get her doing something else instead of, you know, running to see men. So it really just, you know, it depends on the function and what you can do to compete with some mm. of those things if you can't actually offer what it is that the function of the behavior is related to. Hopefully that made mm. sense. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it totally made sense. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a great story, I think, because it, you know, I think it speaks to, uh, you know, us. Uh, it kind of goes back to sort of some, some biases and assumptions that we're going to that we're going to make about sort of this population of kids like they're. You know that, that you know it, it kind of makes me think of that sort of that that recent 
you know, Pat Fryman yeah. paper, you know, on, on kids, on kids being yep. bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, all kids are bad and, and uh, you know, runaways are bad. And they're bad kids and they're, they'll never change and there's no hope. Well, and that's, and of course, and it's that attitude that keeps them for in the sure. system for the rest of their life and eventually eventually in prison. And so it, it makes me think about sort of, um, you mentioned briefly when you were kind of talk, talk, talking about sort of moving towards more of the interview side of things and you really had to kind of, um, you had to bring in the qualitative uh, kind of research piece. This is something I've been hearing more and more about lately. Mm-hmm. From from other folks that are starting to introduce, not just not in the context of research, but just in the context of general assessment, they're starting to introduce some some more of these kind of qualitative uh, methods for you know either assessing uh, for assessing behavior and assessing situations and and you know and I know there's a lot of them out there and they've got lots of funky names that I can't yeah. that I can't repeat, but um, but uh, as far as sort of the the structure of some of those those interviews, but it's, there seems to be you know, a, a, a bit more of a push now for, you know, hearing people's stories. Yeah, yeah. We're actually, we actually submitted it for a symposium related to qualitative research and how we can uh, use that within some of the work that we do as behavior analysts with um, mm. some folks from Debbie Napolitano from uh, New York and uh, Cynthia Anderson out of May, because mm. a number mm-hmm. of different projects are, are doing qualitative work and they're using that information for the quantitative work that we do. How do we use that information to better to make what we do you know, better and support what it is that we do as behavior analysts. Yeah, totally. And so did, did, did you find that you needed to do like a lot of sort of rapport building with these kids before they started answering these questions or were they keen to kind of just jump right in and tell you the That's stories? a good question. Cause we thought we would, uh, but in yeah. general we didn't as long as, uh, because and it could have been because we were outside people from their that we weren't their case manager we weren't living with them we came in as a behavioral so we came in very open-minded we had we definitely taught our behavioralist interview skills and how to reflect back how to use empathy statements a variety of things that a lot of behaviorists mm-hmm. really aren't taught how do you interview somebody. <laughs> so yeah. we taught those skills True. so that our behavioralists that were interviewing, uh, would, they were never judgmental in the interview, things like that, that, that would get kids to talk. Mm-hmm. And in general, kids were very open to talking with, with us. But in, we're also trying to figure out a way to incorporate within the actual overall runaway intervention is how do we decide who interviews the kid? Uh, because... You know, we were outside people, but now that if, I, if I'm trying to get caseworkers or case managers to go in an interview, well, we need to make sure that that person has a reasonable relationship, a good enough relationship with them to do the interview and that their interview mm-hmm. skills are there. So because if, if they're going to be judgmental and just say things, you know, back to the youth, then the youth will close up and not actually talk with them. So um, mm-hmm. it's certainly something to consider and that we're trying to figure out better ways to develop. Well, in our part of our training for the runway intervention model is interviewing skills and how we interview. And we've, we've created some videos that show kind of a good interview and a bad interview and some things from the bad interview that you might want to avoid and having um, them look at that uh-huh. in our training. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is foster. It's mind blowing, you know, and I've had this conversation with a few guests now and many, many others, how that piece is missing from our training. You know, I mean, 
half of our job is doing assessments and conducting interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and yet we don't, we aren't taught how to conduct interviews and how to have, you know, have listening skills. Like I'm like the, the lack of sort of counseling skills or, or sort of motivational interviewing right. skills or any of those sorts of pieces from, from our training is, is, is somewhat mind blowing considering the work they expect us to do. It's true. We definitely need more of it. I'm hoping eventually that's, that's added into some of the curriculums, especially the motivational inter- interviewing yeah. pieces. Yep. Cause any kind of interview you're doing, whether yeah. it's a fast, a mass, anything, uh, you should yeah. be looking for certain things from that interview and knowing how to ask follow-up questions mm-hmm. because some of that information is, is exactly. extremely important to how we develop uh, our interventions. Exactly. And, 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 and then I think those follow-up questions are key there. You know, you don't get every single question you should be asking in these, in these forms, these forms are meant to be guides. And really the, the ideal is that one could just walk into a situation with no piece of paper and just ask the right questions right. and, you know, sort of get the, get those answers, but how do you, how do you kind of build those skills for sure? Um, in terms of kind of, uh, w- did, did you find that the foster homes were, so you, obviously you're at, at times it was accessing, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends and things like that, or maybe it was like curfew and, or, or maybe it was, um, you know, or getting to family and blah, blah, blah. No, but what, but I'm sure you often found there were just things that were wrong with the actual placement when you weren't able to change the placement. And I know that, that, I mean, that's going to be a really hard thing to do in general placements aren't, right. aren't a dime mm-hmm. dozen. It's hard, they're, they're hard to set up. Um, uh, did you find that foster homes were open to making changes? I think in general, yes. Uh, so foster homes and group homes we've worked with. Uh, we had one girl who she was running, she started running away because she wanted to take Lunchables for lunch. And the group home said, no, we can't do that. <laughs> like, really? That's oh it? Oh, my gosh. Uh, because she would go to school and people would know she'd have this bag lunch and they'd know <laughs> she was living at that group home and she didn't you know, like that. Mm. Um, so we worked with them on uh, can she do some chores to earn Lunchables? Uh, and so we set up a situation mm-hmm. where she could do some chores, earn Lunchables. They also didn't have a really good rapport with her. So we tried to, uh, we did some training with the staff there on some of the tools that we teach in our curriculum. And uh to develop mm-hmm. a better relationship with her so that she would kind of remain stable. And so she did, um, she was able to earn lunchables and then we ended up finding her a placement that was a little bit better for her, but she had to stay there for until we could find a different placement. Uh, but in general, I think most of the placements are willing to do their best to rearrange things so that kids are successful. I think it can be just difficult based on whatever rules or regulations that they feel they might need to follow, even though they may not necessarily actually have to follow those. There's a lot of like regulation Mm -hmm. statewide around normalization with kids. So kids Mm -hmm. should be allowed to go out and hang out with friends at the mall or should be allowed to do whatever. But then some Mm -hmm. group homes feel like, well, if they're, if their eyes aren't on them, then they're run, they're running away. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're not allowed to do that, but that's really not um, how it's set up. So it's kind of adjusting what different facilities or even foster parents feel that they need to uh, have in place at their at their homes and like have you done any kind of work to kind of because this is the barrier i think we run into a lot is 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 exactly that is that the you know the agency or or there isn't even an agency and it's just 
you know, mm-hmm. a foster parent and whatever, um, uh, you know, and, and they, 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 they have sort of these assumptions, um, uh, you know, that may or may not have any basis. Uh, do you have any luck kind of changing their minds or ways of sort of convincing them to kind of go the other direction? You know? I mean, I think we have when we've worked with families. Uh, it's very individualistic based on that, you know, that home yeah. and that kid that's in the home. Uh, so I don't have like any like huge group or data on, um, what we've been able no, to do, no, but no. I mean, we try to with, um, when we're training them, uh, on, on how to, you know, improve their relationship with, with the kids in their home. Um, we try to mm-hmm. do that. It, it can be difficult. Um, we've tried to change, I mean, it, it, which is why, you know, behavioral analysts should get better training also on sis, kind of systemic or systematic change within systems because mm-hmm. a lot of it is, is mm-hmm. system change. We tried to work with group facilities and changing the entire system. We worked with one group home to try to implement kind of like school-wide behavior support, but uh, we did agency-wide. Yep. Uh, yep. But it was really difficult because turnover is so high. So staff turnover is so high. So yes. once we train everybody, get them to speed, turnover is high, managers leave, and then we have people who aren't trained anymore. Um, so getting it to sustain mm-hmm. has been like nearly impossible at, at some of these places. So it's something though that behavior analysts and most behavior analysts don't know how to do that. They're not trained kind of organizational behavior management or how you change an nope. entire system, how you go top down into a system and, and rearrange how things are done. And that's really what has to happen at a lot of the locations yep. that we work at. <laughs> A hundred percent. I mean, and, and anyone who works in kind of any kind of residential care setting, whether it's foster yeah. care or just a group home for folks with developmental disabilities or whatnot, you know, will will have, will is is probably nodding right <laughs> now about sort of the you know the the, the staff constantly yes. quitting and, and and you know the low pay and the lack of training and you know sort of all, all those all those pieces that are in place that that make and, and then just the placement itself just not being a good fit right. anyway but being the only yep. one available mm-hmm. and so you you get that bed regardless exactly of, that's just like of, how it is you have foster care surrounded group by homes wherever mm-hmm. yeah 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 and so yeah you're right it, it's just sort of that that systems approach um and it's you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, maybe there's more work that I'm just not aware of, but we haven't seen a lot. Of, we've seen, you know, we've seen tons of really good work in the school wide PBS yes. realm and, you know, and, 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 sort of, and there's know, been some good you know, work in thousands. Of yeah. Kids. And there's been yeah. some good work in taking that school wide approach to juvenile justice facilities. But when it comes to foster oh, okay. care, there hasn't been much. There's been a little bit. There's a group in Pennsylvania yeah. that's done some things in foster care by taking school wide PBIS into agencies in, in um, foster mm. care. But other than that, I'm not, there might be someone in Arizona too who's doing some of that work, but it's certainly not huge. Yeah. Not a whole lot of folks out there doing it. Yeah. Hmm. And and yet it's, and yeah, I mean, even, even sort of just positive behavior support alone, when you, when, when you say the phrase, you know, everyone is, schools is what they yes. think of right away. They don't think of sort of any other context anymore. And in fact, I think a lot of folks now are using, you know, are saying they're PBS practitioners when they're uh, not, you know, when they're really just doing, they're just doing, they're, they're doing right. ABA, which is a lot of PBS, uh, but they're not, but they're not doing that systems piece, yeah. which I think is, 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 you know, they're, they're doing quality of life and all that good stuff, but that systems piece is so huge in PBS yeah. and, um, and, and we don't, we don't see mm-hmm. enough of that. So yeah, I hear you. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the the assessments and and I, and I took a look at it. We'll we'll, we'll have links to all these on, on, in the show notes and and, and the the actual uh, 
article on sure. the functional mm-hmm. assessment interview for, for runaways has, you know, has the whole assessment right there at the back there for folks to kind of use and look and, and kind of get an idea of, and, and it's, and it, it's got some great questions. What, what sort of, um, what were the results like in some of these studies as far as, as far as the, the interventions themselves being successful? So you, you've, you've done a good assessment. How, how's, how the outcomes Yeah, the outcomes been? have been really good. So we, um, so for the, uh, the grant that we had, we had uh, 25 youth that, that were recruited into the study. And I think it was all but one youth saw reductions in running away. So what we did was we do days on the run because uh, when it comes to running away, it's not necessarily the frequency you're running. It's how many days they're on the run. I mean, frequency does matter, but you okay. can have a kid running eight times but only be gone one night each night. Versus one kid who runs mm. once and has gone 200 days. Well, which kid is probably in more danger? Mm. Probably the kid who runs 200 days. Absolutely. Um, so we were looking at number totally. of days on the run pre and post intervention. So we looked back on uh, six, uh, actually a year's worth of data prior to coming into uh, our intervention and then a year after um, and saw really uh, significant reductions in running away. Uh, I forget what the P score was or whatever, but it was definitely a significant reduction. All but one of them saw decreases in, in running away and the other one remained. That person only had two runs before we intervened and I think she ran maybe twice for a couple of days after and then stopped running uh, for the one who didn't. Uh, but the rest of them, a lot of them decreased from you know two some of them had 200 days on the run before we intervened and then decreased down to near zero. And then we also looked at placement disruptions or uh, the number of uh, placement times their placement changed uh, before and after. And those also decreased significantly. And if anybody's interested in the results, I can certainly send you uh, some of the results that we have um, from that, which we still need to publish. I'm taking forever to get that out. That and the intervention guide we need to publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can certainly send, we have that data out there and I've presented it at a number of conferences already. Some of that data that we, that we have from that initial study, um, that we did. And then we're doing some more work currently. Uh, I think that's really cool. And I think you make, you make a good point about the, the sort of the dependent variable, I guess, around, um, um, uh, you know, number of days, you know, I, I think, um, I think as as a foster parent or even as a behavior a new behavior analyst kind of coming into a situation like this and seeing that a kid has run away like 30 times in the year but maybe only was gone for you know 40 hours right. or whatever you know they didn't even run away for a full day um you know ver- versus kind of looking at the uh, at the amount of days I think because I think folks w- are w- are going to be looking for perfection in in some ways. Oh no, they ran away again, mm-hmm. but he only ran away for like a day. But he didn't run. He you know he that that's not enough. That's not enough time to join a gang and <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and and develop a drug addiction and get someone right. pregnant. You know. So I mean, um, and all these sorts of other sorts of possible issues that can run can happen. You know, as, as kind of time goes on. And so I think just having a, a different perspective on kind of that outcome and going, okay, they they left the house for a day no biggie relative to sort of, you know, getting into, you know, some of these other, other kind of bigger problems. And so I I think thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, one of the difficulties was accessing some of these kids. So it tended to be 
unfortunately that a lot of the kids that were recommended to us or sent to us were the frequent runners that ran for you know a couple mm. days at a time because they're the ones causing trouble on the system for one thing because they got to keep finding emplacements mm-hmm. and they're just they're mm-hmm. there available whereas we're waiting for kids to come back who are gone 200 days and then once they come back we try to get them quickly uh, to interview them mm-hmm. uh, but that can also be difficult because the whole informed consent process is is that's a huge and that's another thing that is a huge barrier mm. to doing research in foster care is the informed consent process uh so you know in order to get informed consent from a kid in care it's really difficult so if you don't have a bio parent a biological parent so if the parental rights are terminated um what we had to do was get consent from the kid and also from the agency but we also had to uh have a court order to be able to uh intervene when it came to kids who mm. still had right to parental rights, we could go and get biological parents to sign, but it was really a weird situation. It's like we're going to biological parents who don't currently have their kids. Uh, we went to jails to get signatures from biological parents uh, so that their kids mm. could potentially be part of the runaway wow, study. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are our plans in the future? What we really want to do, which is what we're doing with this, um, with the current rollout in Florida, is get the agencies to actually implement this as their practice. If they do it as part of their mm-hmm. practice, then we can get de-identified data back to us as they implement, and then we, mm-hmm. we can avoid the informed content process potentially, because uh, mm-hmm. it is just incredibly mm-hmm. difficult. Which I understand why there's uh, a lot of things in place uh, to when it comes to research in foster care, um, but getting informed consent, yeah, is, is really difficult. So that's one of the disadvantages. Yeah, you've got you you've got a lot of studies that that uh, you know. Uh, that make me that 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 seem like they would have you know, taken a, quite a bit of effort to either either get consent or get um you know get past oh, yeah. sort of a, a you know an internal review board or whatnot uh, uh you know I mean you've done a lot of this work in runaways and 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 foster care but you you've also done some work you know and maybe we can kind of mm-hmm, move over sure. to this a bit um um as and and you know sort of so folks run away and you know you're not successful sometimes uh, you know. W- the outcome is is homelessness, mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's really cool to to see that you. That I thought it was really cool to see a, 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 a few studies um, uh, by, by you and colleagues working with the homeless. I mean, I, I don't even know how you how you go about doing that beyond you know um, you know when I think of when I think of working with the homeless, I think of outreach workers bringing blankets yeah. and you know making sure things are okay. I think of harm reduction. You know, I think of uh, 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 of uh, of you know, just encouraging them to go to a shelter and, and this and that and the other. Um, and often it kind of reminds me, I did an interview recently on, 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 uh, on, on someone who was kind of studying kind of drug addiction and, and the same idea, just sort of, you know, like, like there's lots of resources available for these folks, but, you know, it's convincing them to want to access mm-hmm. any of them. Um, um, it, it seems to be the bigger problem. It, it, you know, there, there's lots of shelters, there's lots of, you know, helping agencies available. There's, there's lots of drug, drug rehab and, and the whole nine yards, but you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to want to kind of, kind of get that, that help. And I think for the folks that are homeless, they're probably, it, it's probably, it's probably really tough there. Um, so what, what, what led you to kind of start working with homeless folks? Well, it was actually one of my master's students who was uh, working mm. uh, for a, a church. He was highly involved in a, in a church that was providing support um, to individuals who were homeless. And he really wanted to look at trying to 
um, help as much as he could. And how could he bring behavior analysts into doing that? Um, Colin Streetman's his name. And he uh, and also uh, Rusty Clark, Dr. Rusty Clark, who has done a lot of work in the past related to social problem solving. Uh, he came mm. in and presented at one of my courses and Colin met him and they kind of we all chatted together to try to come up with an idea. And, and this is where kind of uh, his, this was what basically part of Colin's uh, master's thesis that he did. And so he went out and worked with several individuals who um, he had contact with who were homeless to do his uh, research, uh, which I was involved in with him. Hmm. Do you want me to go on to talk about a little bit? (laughs) Okay, sure. Yeah, please. So, I mean, one thing that we thought is that, you know, individuals who are homeless are probably perhaps making some, you know, poor decision making um, around a variety Mm -hmm. of of areas, whether it's work life, home life, relationships. And so maybe one thing we could help them with is is learning some problem solving skills. And so he found some individuals. So the church that he was working at had subsidized uh, some apartments that would provide some housing for some individuals who were homeless. And so these were individuals who were who had had recurrent times in which they were homeless. They were currently in this apartment setting uh, that was subsidized that they could stay there as long as they were working or looking for work. And so two of them were currently working part-time and one was seeking employment out of the three people that we we were working with, um, or three men that we were working with. And for them, we thought, you know, they, they might be able to benefit from some social problem solving. So we used a model called SODAs. Uh, which basically just stands for situations. So first defining an understanding of current situations. So let's say uh, one of these individuals or anybody for that matter has a situation at work where their boss says something and they get mad at their boss. Um, So that might be the situation. So we first define it, figure out what is the situation. Um, And then the O would stand for options. So what are your options in that situation? So you're mad at something your boss said, what could you potentially do? Well, you could yell at your boss. You could, you know, not say anything right then. You could talk and do something else and whatever your situations might be or the options might be. Um, and then having them think about, well, what are the advantages and disadvantages? So the D and the A are the disadvantages and advantages, although we like to talk about advantages first. Um, so what are the advantages to any particular option you might choose? So, okay, what's an advantage if you yell at your boss? Well, an advantage is you might get your anger out. <laughs> be happy about that. But then what's the disadvantages if you yell at your boss? Well, you might lose your job. <laughs> that might not go well. <laughs> so having them, though, brainstorm storm what the advantages and disadvantages Mm. for each of those options are that they come up with and then coming up with a solution. And so they can pick the solution. And we do this with a lot of youth too, um, to to work with youth on how to make better decision-making skills. Um, So they may pick the wrong option and they'll figure out, oh, that's a bad option because it's not us figuring out for them what they should do. It's more teaching Mm -hmm. them the skill of trying to think through a situation instead Mm. of just, you know, acting right away on a situation. Um, and, and then it doesn't go well. So it's teaching them kind of a thought process for how you might, instead mm. of just reacting in the moment, what might you do instead? You might think about your options, your advantages, disadvantages, those options, and then come up with what might be the best solution um, there. And so we trained these three participants. And what we did was we trained them to actually facilitate this process with somebody else, with like a friend that they know or another individual who's homeless that oh. they know. So we trained them to do it hoping that if they learn how to do this for someone else, then they will learn how to do it for themselves. And so we did that so that we could get some data on them actually doing it with us. And so um, we would act as the, the 
individual who had a difficult situation and they would have to work us through the process of that. So they would ask us, so what is the situation? So what are your options? And they have to stay non-judgmental through the process. What are your advantages and disadvantages? They can't tell us what we're supposed to do. They have to work us through the process um, to come up with a solution. And so that's how we did our mm -hmm. probes um, for getting data from them to see how they would do it in baseline before we taught them how to do this process and then how they would do it after we taught them all the steps. So it's basically a checklist of steps that we were teaching them how to do it. Um, and so they did it with us, and we saw that their skills improved up um, somewhere between like 90%, 100%. And then we did a social validity follow-up to see if they were actually using this in their own life. And so what we yeah. had them do was fill out one of the SOTA's worksheets each week. We met with them once a week. We said, if you come up to the situation this week and you use the process, we want you to write it down. Now, of course, sometimes they didn't come to the meeting written down, but we had them write it down in the meeting. And most of them did actually use it for different problems they had. One of the guys really liked it and was using it multiple times throughout um, the course of the week for a different situation he was in. Um, and so hmm. that actually helped, at least from a social validity standpoint of, hey, maybe they're going to use this in their own lives, which might help them. Since it's kind of difficult for us to follow them around and see if they're using it <laughs> in their situations, yeah, exactly. it's kind of hard to, yeah, to actually get any direct observation type data. So that was one way we tried to get at least some validity from them, that they were able, they learned the process and they were hopefully using it in own, their own situations. Yeah. So, so that's neat. So, so it wasn't really about, so it was okay for if, if if sort of the solution they came up with might not have been great. It is. Uh -huh. um, and, and so and so and so if they came up with a solution that in the end you know would would not help their would not solve the problem, you weren't giving them feedback to sort of change their decision. Not really. No. So most of any of that might happen when you're actually talking about advantages and disadvantages. Uh, mm -hmm. but they, they might make the wrong decision. And we see that often when we work with youth who we do this SOTA's process with. It was developed actually for the TIP model, the transition, uh, transition, uh, it's a transition. To independence? Yes, yeah, thank you. Transition independence yeah. model uh, that Rusty <laughs> Clark kind of developed that model and they're training it across the country. I think he even goes to Canada actually mm. um, to do mm. some training on this model for uh, actually youth who have who are anywhere from like 18 to 25 like young uh who also might have mm -hmm. emotional behavior disorders and to kind of to help them in their decision making processes to make better decisions um but they have to own the decision uh and so it's not something because we can tell them what to do all day long are they going to do it probably not um, so it's more a matter of getting them to kind of think through their decisions a little bit more and think about the different advantages and disadvantages. So hopefully it makes them come up with a better decision in the end. Um, but us yeah. telling them what to do is we, we know that doesn't work <laughs> really well. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course. The second secret word is run. And so, and so did you find that folks, you know, that maybe, maybe initially, you know, it didn't work for them would still try it again. Like they were that, even, even though the, maybe the first decision they made might not have been the greatest, they were still willing to try it again. Yeah. I mean, the prior research like the has process? shown that it, the process is pretty effective. There's been a few other studies um, out there on the tip yeah. model and also the sodas process in general with youth. Um, I think this is the only study that we did related to um, adults, uh, who were homeless. Mm. And so we wouldn't really have that information because we were only getting the feedback from when they potentially attempted to use it. Um, but I don't mm -hmm. think, I, I don't recall, I don't think we asked them, you know, did, is, 
you know, if it didn't work well, what did you do? Did you change what you did or anything like sure, that? We sure, only got sure. the information back from them. Yeah. And were these folks that were like currently homeless or were they like staying in a shelter or like, how did you access So them? they were currently in an apartment that was subsidized by the local church. So they weren't having mm. to pay for it. It was subsidized. So they, they had to earn their way kind of in there into that apartment. So they had to be off of substances right. and also looking for work or working at least a little bit um, to be able to stay there. I mean, they could earn it getting in there, but then in order to stay, they have to you know do some things to be able to stay in that type of housing. Right. So homeless, I guess, I guess maybe this kind of goes back to what, what is homelessness? Right. Homelessness doesn't necessarily mean you're living on the streets. True. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it just means you don't have your own home. Is that, is that essentially the definition? Um, or? Yeah, that's a good so. question. I mean, it could be you're in a shelter placement, <clears throat> you're kind of going yeah. or even like couch surfing to different people's homes that, you know, it could be a variety right, of things. Right, yeah. Right, living in a yeah, car. Yeah. 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 I really loved and and I know and, and the 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 piece about this where you actually got the adults to teach other adults who are homeless. Um I I don't suppose there was any sort of was there any way to sort of look at those folks or I wish we could or, have. <laughs> we didn't yeah, in this study. Yeah. It'd be awesome to do that in the future. Um, to see if they were able to actually go out and, and help somebody else. They commented on like, hey, yeah, I talked to my friend and told him to do such and such or told him he needs yeah, to think yeah. about this a little differently. And and so they did comment a little bit on that, but uh, we didn't actually assess that or go out and take data on that. I just, I just think what an amazing way to sort of apply like the pyramid model mm-hmm. to, you know, the the actual sort of subjects of, of, of whatever intervention you're looking yeah. at. So you have homeless folks helping other homeless folks. You have you know, peers helping peers and, you know, sort of so on and so forth. I just, it, I just think that could be really, really it, cool. It could. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really neat. Um, that's cool. And so can, can we just shift briefly yeah. and talk about uh, that other study that you, that we kind of just touched on before we kind of pressed record um, that you've, uh, in terms of kind of working with, you, you did some work with, I guess was, was it homeless kids? Yeah. Yeah. One? So there's um, a, uh, location called Metropolitan Ministries here in Tampa, and they provide a lot of services to families who are in need of of, of homes, of support, and so they have uh, a facility that's a shelter facility um, in Tampa for homeless families to come and, and stay there for a certain period of time while they're looking for work, and they can get a variety of other services while they're there. And um, they also have a school on site. It's a county school for the area, but the kids go to that school and there's an after school program at that school. Um, the after school mm. program um, is located like right there on site. And they actually have a behavioral analyst who works in the after school program part time. And we've done some, we're doing some current work there too, but we also had a study that um, was published where we were trying to help some of those kids learn um, some social skills. Um, one thing that some kids who are homeless may lack. Um, certain types of, of social skills and how to interact and so forth. And so we, um, one of my master's thesis students wanted, who was there, who she was placed there for her practicum site and uh, was really interested in helping some of those kids learn some skills. And so she came across a application. It's an app that might teach social skills and she wanted to try to see if that might work. And so she did that, but then she ended up having to combine it with um, behavior skills training. Uh, to actually get it to work. And so what what she did was had Confederates come into the environment. Fortunately, these kids are used to other kids coming into the after-school program, so it wasn't, Mm. like, weird that someone would come in and introduce themselves. 
<laughs> and so one of the skills was just introducing. So when someone comes up and says, hi, my name's so-and-so, mm-hmm. to teach them how to say, oh, mm-hmm. well, my name's blah, 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 and, and respond. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other skills was how to make a nice comment. And this is where a person might say, you know, I, oh, I got this new watch today, and have, have the kids comment on saying something like, oh, that's really nice. I like your new watch. Um, it's really cool or whatever. Um, so trying to teach them how to respond to something. And then I think the other skill was sharing that we taught uh, within that setting was how you might share um, with another kid in that situation and how you would go about doing that. Mm. And so she did that with those kids and was able to increase their ability to do to do those three specific social skills that were part of this one online social skills curriculum. <clears throat> now, the curriculum mm. itself didn't work them just going through the curriculum. It was a mm-hmm. um, online kind of a curriculum where they went through, answered some questions, learned about the social skill, mm. but then they actually needed the role-playing and the behavioral skills training to actually learn how to do it um, when a confederate would come right. approach them. And so we did those uh, kind of in-situ probes where we had someone approaching them um, to see if it would actually work. Uh, once we trained it. The third secret word is Florida. And so, besides, I mean, social skills are good to have for anyone. Do you think that having these social skills would have would 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 it would help them to sort of? To, I don't, I don't, to not be homeless? To, to... <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Probably not, because it's not their fault that they're homeless since they're kids. Um, these right. are elementary school fair. kids, oh, yeah. Fair. Oh, fair enough. So these are kids that are homeless because their parents yes. are homeless sort of mm-hmm. thing? And, uh, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. so their family so is living sort of... there because of whatever situation is happening with um, their parents. Right. But given the situation that was with their parents, there's a good chance that they're not, uh, they may not even be attending school regularly before they came into the shelter. Right. They may be lacking some of the skills that they might need. And so we just approached it with, well, what are a few different skills we could teach to try to help them? Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly would need more gotcha. than just those skills. Uh, but yeah. that was kind of the first start of it. Um, but they are getting other services there. And we, there's an after-school program in which they're, we're training right. the teachers and how to use Class Dojo to try to help with behavior issues that are happening in the after-school program. Mm. Uh, and you know, a variety of things. There's a couple different curriculums they're using in that program to help them also gain you know, different skills. No, that makes sense. And, and, and <laughs> learn, learning to make friends isn't going to get you a home um, or get your <laughs> well, parents I mean, a home. it can but, help you but it is, in general. It can help you. And it also, I think, I think you know, it, it, it's not so much about, um, you know, I, I don't think services for homeless kids are about helping them get a home. It's a, that, that, That's what you're working with the parents for. For these kids, it's about by being homeless, they, they, they're, they're also, they also lack opportunities to just. For sure have a general education in anything. And so, you know, any skills that we can give them can help them kind of be more resilient as, as, as they For sure. Older. Cause these so, might help them make friends, yeah. you know, keep friends, that sort of thing. So you talked about using BST. I'm going to take a slight, a slight tangent for the listeners sure. and, and just talk about one more paper that, that you did that, that just, again, I, again, when I, for, 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 if I have any audience, any folks in the audience that actually listen to more than one episode of my podcast, um, and, uh, and and thank you if you do, uh, but um, uh, you probably started to notice that that I, I go on a, a lot of different tangents, um, and because the 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 way I sort of recruit guests for the podcast, 
is usually based on just the research I kind of find them doing and, 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 and articles that look really cool. And sometimes I find folks are doing research that isn't always directly related to everything else they're doing. And so uh, the, the, the topic shifts, shifts quite a few times. Um, uh, and, and, and this, this one's no different. Um, and it, it's so rare that I see, you know, uh, articles on, 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 on bullying um, that aren't sort of school centered um, um, number one and two that actually have, you know, an actual sort of skills component. So usually bullying interventions, and I shouldn't say usually my, my little experience with bullying interventions, they seem to be more like these kind like that kind of online social skills group you talked oh, about, yeah. or, you know, where, you know, they're just kind of putting people through curriculum or saying, you know, or, you know, it's like say no and go and tell someone you trust and, you know, all those commercials that they used to have when we were kids and stop, drop and roll or whatever, <laughs> you know, to sort of, you know, you know, here, 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 here's what you should do, but, you know, but, but to actually kind of get in there and, and do it with them. And so you, you, you had done this article, I think it was just a couple of years ago on, on an intervention called, uh, response to bullying can you and 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 in in that you use vst um but then i see that you also use something called ist mm-hmm. and uh i often have seen those 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 abbreviations um um uh in in, in similar papers whenever whenever uh, dr ray miltenberger writes something yep <laughs> um, and i noticed and then and, and so i i wasn't surprised to see he was one of the authors on, on on this study so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the study sure. but also about kind of what the difference is between bst and IST. okay yeah sure yeah so this study took forever to get through our internal review board <laughs> um so <laughs> they always do yeah. i imagine <laughs> so well, I'm sure many of you who work, who are listening, who work out in group home settings for adults, and I used to work in some group home settings for adults years ago, uh, mm. know that sometimes they're not very nice to each other. <laughs> some of the people living in those settings, they're mean, they say rude things to each other or mean things to each other. And so yep. that's kind of what was happening at this group facility, group home place that we that we went mm, and did this study gotcha. and it was one of my um thesis students was at this group home and she's like gosh these these guys are just so mean to each other you know can we figure out a way to get mm-hmm. them to stop saying you know mean things and bullying each other and so that's kind mm-hmm. of where the idea came across and so this was a um a group facility it had like three little homes on the campus and mm-hmm. uh it was only for for men and it it was actually for men who mm-hmm. had previous instances of kind of inappropriate sexual behavior um so Mm, but they were all living at this and we weren't focused on that behavior but they were all living at this particular group home and uh they ranged really from kind of mild developmental disabilities to i would say moderate so this wasn't like really severe these guys were talking to each other you know they many of them had they went to a workplace um off campus and so forth they could they could go to the store with staff, buy things, and so forth. Mm. Um, so just to get an idea of kind of their functioning level. And so we mm. we ended up recruiting um, three three of the men. Uh, two of them had mild developmental disabilities, and one was kind of more along the lines of moderate developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we were thinking was, well, what can we do? What do we think is the function here? And we're, we mainly think the function is probably attention. Um, wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be, but we're thinking they're probably getting a lot of attention. So the person who's bullying somebody, mm-hmm. the person who's getting bullied, the victim, is responding to it. 
um, yelling back at them, creating, you know, a situation where it's arguing back and forth. So there's a lot of attention going mm -hmm. on to this. Mm -hmm. um, so could we do something to decrease this, you know, attention that's provided? And maybe if we did that, we could decrease the bullying. And so we created this kind of response to bullying where we would teach victims. So the, these three guys that we recruited were getting bullied quite often um, at these group homes. Good. And so what if we teach them what to do? So when come on, someone comes up and says something rude to you or mean, uh, threatens you, mm. whatever, because there was stuff like, oh, I'm going to go you know, dig a hole and bury you in it or whatever, <laughs> stuff <Right>. like that. <laughs> um, what can they do? So what we did is taught them to first, the step one was refrain, refrain from retaliating. So don't say anything, don't do anything, um, don't get, because sometimes they would get physical, hit them and so forth. Um, you want to mm -hmm. not say anything or not get physical with them and not retaliate, basically. Um, the step two was you could say a short statement of disapproval, like, I don't like that. And so we asked each of the guys that we worked with, what is your statement going to be? So they could pick it out. And it was something okay. similar to that. Like, I don't like that. That's not nice. Um, and then they were supposed to walk away. That was step three. So it's refrain from retaliating, state a short comment of disapproval, walk away. And then the fourth step was tell a staff member. And we can talk about that a little later, but mm. tell somebody mm -hmm, about it. Mm -hmm. um, you can see these are kind of similar to some of the other work that Dr. Miltenberger has done with like gun safety, abduction prevention, and things like yes. that. Yeah, related to the staff. Yes. But we kind of just took that and applied it to bullying, which is why we did have him help us kind of you know, set this up very similar to some of his other work. And so we use behavior skills training to train these participants, the guys to do this. And so we would say a bully statement mm -hmm. to them. We'd have them practice what they're supposed to do when that happens um, and so forth. And so then we mm -hmm. had Confederates. And so we trained other individuals who had developmental disabilities, but these guys were guys who used to be in this setting, but were now out independent living. So they're guys with developmental disabilities, but they're living in independent living, but they know the guys that we're working with. They know our participants because they do outings together. They go to like the bowling alley, other things together. So they knew who they were. So they weren't like somebody who would just come into the environment not knowing because that'd be kind of odd to have somebody come in and bully you when you don't know them kind of thing. Um, so we trained the Confederates, these guys who were in independent living, to come in and actually say a bully statement to our participants. So that we could see, mm. did they act, would they actually do the response we trained them? Otherwise, how would we know if they do it? Uh, sure, we can mm -hmm. bully them all day long, but they're going to do it with us. But will they actually do it in a situation, a real situation where they think they're in a real situation mm -hmm. and they don't know that this person is part of the study? So you can see now mm -hmm. why it took forever to get through internal review board uh, because of all the potential <laughs> issues with, you know, someone coming in and bullying somebody else yeah, uh, absolutely. and so forth. So, yeah, it took forever to get through there. We actually designed it as a multiple probe study because we wanted to have the least number of probes of this to happen. Uh, but the mm -hmm. internal review board said you got to run one participant completely through so we can make sure nobody's going to get hurt, injured before you can do the next mm -hmm. two. So we had to change it to a multiple baseline design, which then we had to do more probes, which actually made it a you know, more dangerous kind of study. But that won't even go into that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we did this design. So it was a multiple baseline design. So in baseline, the Confederate would come in, say the bully statement. We'd record what the participant did. And the Confederate had specific instructions to come in you know, kind of interact for a couple of seconds or whatever, and then say a bully statement. And, and within five seconds after saying it, they were supposed to leave the area so they didn't get hit or injured. They weren't supposed to talk back and so forth. But we were recording, well, what did the, the victim say, the particip our participant? Did they say, that's not that nice? Did they yell at them? What did they do um, in baseline? And then we trained them in, with behavior skills training to respond using this response to bullying and then recorded when the Confederate came in what they did. 
<laughs> and we did see that. Um, so BST was effective for two of the participants, although one of the participants mm. needed uh, IST, so in situ training. So basically what that is, mm. is so they got the BST training now in the moment when that Confederate came in and bullied and they didn't do the response correctly, then one of the researchers would jump in, come out of nowhere, basically, <laughs> come out of nowhere and stop the situation and say, oh, let's, let's, let's do this again. So what's supposed to happen when someone comes and bullies you? What are you supposed to do? Yeah, we're supposed to do this. And then we practice mm. it three times. So that's kind of what in-situ training is. It's practicing the right response of what should have happened in that situation. And mm. so that worked for one participant. However, the, the last participants needed actually an incentive. So we did BST, IST, and they mm. still weren't implementing it until we offered an incentive for if they were bullied, they could earn something um, for engaging in the correct response. And we got it to increase, I think, to a mm. three uh, out of four steps. I forget which step that that participant was missing. And that participant was the one that had the more moderate level disabilities. And he would often comment that, well, well, that person wasn't bullying me. They were really not, they're really a nice person kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> and may have struggled like interpreting the bully response uh, mm. for that person. So that's could have been what happened. And then one of the other participants would only get to three steps, which was kind of understandable because he'd tell us, well, why do I have to tell the staff person? They're right over there watching. <laughs> which technically they did see it because that was the other thing. The IRB made us have to have a staff person within so many feet of this happening in case something went down and mm. they had to intervene. So in some ways that, that particular participant was correct. It's like the staff person saw it. So why do I have to go tell them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So was there... Did you did you get to see at that point then if it was effective with the actual roommates? Yeah. Oh. Um. No. So. So we didn't actually. So the problem with actually evaluating this, which is why we had Confederates, because otherwise we kind of have to mm -hmm. sit around all day and wait for somebody to bully somebody else. Um. Mm -hmm. So we didn't do that, but we did actually get some feedback uh, from the the participants and also from the group home staff saying that they saw them mm -hmm. using this and the participants said yeah they think it was helpful um that this person doesn't bully them as much now when they walk away um things mm -hmm. like that we got from our social validity statement but i wish we could have it's just a matter of you'd have to sit around all day and wait for something to happen and see if they respond uh and then if you're sitting mm -hmm. there watching they might uh that's one of the issues with um, if we're observing and present in the room is they might react differently just because we're there. Um, so it was mm -hmm. really clear that we weren't in the room when the Confederates came in. We had a camera kind of offsite, like off hiding um, to get that information. So that's why we incorporated the Confederates to make mm. sure they would do it when, when we're not there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and did, did these folks, did, so did these victims, quote unquote, they're, they're obviously being get used to being bullied by their roommates. Did they did they understand that these Confederates were faking it? They did not know that. No, but we did have to mm. debrief them after the study. Mm. And so mm. after the study, the Confederates and the um. So this was part of um the pro like the internal review board made us do this, but we were got yeah, at yeah. it anyway. Um, where we put them together in a room and we made it really clear to the participant that we asked the Confederate to do this. The Confederate is not a mean person, you know, whatever. We went over this. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then had the Confederates apologize, say, you know, I was part of the study, you know, I was only doing it because they told me to do it, you know, whatever, things like that. We basically debriefed them at the end, both the Confederates and the um the participants. 
And we also trained the Confederates on how to respond if they were ever bullied. Mm. It reminds me of an episode of What Would You Do? Um, oh yeah, uh, you know, do you know that yep. show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, where they where where the, where the cameras co- the cameras come out and they all explain. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of like that. Nice people, <laughs> and we and we don't we don't actually do this sort of thing. I uh, just just uh, with with it so, it, and it would make sense with sort of the type of studies Milton Berger does with guns mm-hmm. and you know and sexual abuse and and those sorts of things where obviously. You could only ever do those studies with Confederates. You're never gonna you know, right. have a real gun, or you're never gonna have you know actual sexual abuse or anything like that. Um, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question or not, but um, but I'm just sort of thinking for more for my mm-hmm. own practice um, and 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 sort of trying to do more of this IST stuff because we've been trying to incorporate this a little bit, um, and it's easier to, we're doing it in kind of staff training, which is a lot easier to do because it's sort of staff right. working with staff and, 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 and that's easy enough. But, um, do folks ever do sort of in situ training with, you know, without Confederates? Uh, I would think so. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's no reason that you, you couldn't, I mean, I think it's normally, mm. I mean, the studies that Dr. Miltenberger, uh, does, uh, he has Confederates that are you know, coming into the situation or, well, he has right. researchers come into the situation and do the, um, the IST, yeah, but yeah. parents have been taught how to do in situ training in his studies. Um, so a parent okay, can come in go. if they don't touch the, or if they touch the gun, a parent comes in and tells them, Hey, what are we supposed to do instead or with medication or whatever? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right so for right, sure, right. anybody yeah. could be taught how to do in situ training. Cause you could teach, you know, a teacher in a situation where if that teacher witnesses bullying happening, um, mm-hmm. to come in mm-hmm. and quickly train, uh, the either the victim or the bully, depending on what you're training, um, on how yeah. to respond in that situation. So there's no reason that that couldn't exactly. happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. No, that's cool. Really cool. Well, really neat. I I think it's just quite a cool to, again to see, you know, this kind of work being done with you know these really kind of super vulnerable populations. I mean, I think you're you're I don't know if lucky is the right word, <laughs> but maybe just really good at at grant writing to sort of get. Um, you know, uh, financial support mm-hmm. to do this kind of work. Um, um, have you found sort of any of these things uh, being um, now being used by some of these agencies now that you're kind of out of the picture or? or Yeah, the ru- the runaway stuff is I get probably at least a couple emails every month about people wanting that because um, right now we only publish the the. Uh, assessment, the interview, but we have an entire yeah. intervention guide that I need to publish. And so I'll send mm, that off. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that way different folks can use both of those materials. And there's a variety of people across the country using those in, in but behavior analysts and also social workers uh, and case managers who are using some of those assessments and um, interventions for when they work Amazing. with kids who are running away. Um, there's a couple of different Amazing. sites that I work with directly um, in different places in the United States that are using that. Uh, and even still in Florida, to, too, we're still doing that. So that's being used. Um, and the SOTA's process is being used in a variety of different types of interventions. The mm-hmm. response to bullying, I'm not sure. Hopefully some folks are picking that up. I have gotten a number of, yeah. of emails about that study and questions. And cool. so I think people are starting to look at that and and might be using it in some of the work they're doing. Uh, we wanted to do another study with... Um, with uh, preschoolers uh, related yep. to bullying. And, and that one we were going to actually observe oh, yeah. and try to see it happen on the playground and be able to intervene totally. right away. Uh, but then COVID hit and we kind of got, yes, 
kind of sidelined for a while (laughs) to do that. But we're hoping to do some more stuff in that. Bullying is hard because it is a lot like, you know, gun safety and other things where if you're present, then it might not happen. It's going to happen when adults aren't present. Uh, Same with running away. So it's just a difficult behavior to, to try to, you know, study and actually collect data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. And the bullying one, I think works really well in, in, in kind of those, like particularly the study in that group mm-hmm. home context. I mean, I think that's an ideal sort of scenario to kind of kind of do this kind of intervention because you you are sitting, the staff are available, you know, to to be they're, they're right there right. and and the, sort of the people doing it are right there. Like it's all it's it's just a nice sort of microcosm that you can really I think you could really do some some kind of cool yeah, stuff sure. with if if you were just a, a group home manager running it versus you know a, a researcher like yourself having to get approval from boards and whatnot right. whereas they could just kind of do it and then see if, sure. see if the you know the residents have those responses i th- the reason i asked the question is i think all it just seems like all, all of the work that you've done here is really sort of easily kind of replicable by you know sort of you know uh, kind of non-behavior analytic professionals mm-hmm. i mean they're, they're, these are not these are not you know, difficult studies, certainly difficult studies to to get off the ground for uh, for all those obvious right. sort of um, bureaucratic barriers and, and ethical barriers and whatnot. Um, but, you know, the actual sort of idea of sort of, you know, whether it's for the runaway assessment, just asking the right questions and then making some changes or sodas, which is just a, you know, a, a really standard sort of way of, of making decisions. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think these are really, really nice Nice examples of of, uh, uh, of research that can be easily sort of applied in in kind of regular environments. I just think that's really cool, and I, and uh, I hope I hope other folks will uh, will take some of this stuff uh, and 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 kind of do that. So what's 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 next on on uh, in in the project list for uh, you? Kim? Well, I have a current grant right now, which is uh, educate. <laughs> It's a Department of Education grant, and it's actually to try to uh, work with teachers in self-contained classrooms of students with emotional behavior disorders to implement class-wide mm. interventions to try to increase engagement mm. uh, in class yep. and decrease problem behavior, but implementing kind of class-wide, those tier two kind of interventions um, is what we're working on now. But it's been a struggle for the past, the grant got funded a year ago, and she's because mm. schools right now, get, trying to get into schools with COVID has been a bit of a strain. So we're we're, we're working yeah, on it though. Absolutely. So we're doing that work. Yeah. So there's, uh, that going on and, uh, some other things related to schools, but then we're also doing something, I mean, still doing the runaway stuff with a couple of agencies and, uh, working on, uh, some stuff within a group facility that we have in foster care to try to, we're actually trying to do something to increase. It's kind of like an OBM project to try to get, uh, staff to come in on time and to decrease staff yep. turnover and try to figure out how can we change that um, at this particular right. facility because we're having huge turnover, which is partially a COVID issue, but also just what happens at some of these facilities. So how can we, you know, get some things lined up to, to help increase staff retention working on? Cool. Really good. Cool. Well, thanks again for just being on the podcast. Sure. Sharing sharing your really neat work and, uh, and, if, and yeah, really really cool. If any of your listeners want more information on any of these studies, just tell them to reach out to me. I can send them anything they might be interested in. Happy to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll put your email list in the show notes, and as well as you know, links to all the articles and all that, all all that kind of good stuff. So really cool. Thanks again. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Right. Cheers.